The world is on fire. If we, the Jewish people, continue to seek guidance and inspiration, the timelessness of our Torah. This week, we study Parshat Naso. It's the second Torah portion in the fourth book of the Torah. And it opens rather oddly. It's kind of the middle of a subject. It's a continuation of the narrative that we had begun in the preceding Torah portion, which is called Bamidbar. Bamidbar concluded with the details of conscription, the conscription of the Levite clan. You see, it was the Levite clan that was tasked with the sacred and very important duty of dismantling and then re-establishing of moving the Mishkan. Torah, for some special reason, decides to divide or break a narrative in half. And it's true that this week's Torah portion is the longest of Torah portions, <laughs> but that's not why. Torah is not afraid of long Torah portions. Clearly, there's a very sharp distinction that's drawn between Kahat, between the clan that had the sacred duty of carrying the Aron, in which were housed the Luchot, Bekalar, the tablets of law, the manifestation of divine presence here on planet Earth. They carried the Shogra, the table, they carried the menorah, the candelabra, symbolic of God's light, and ultimately the light that we, the Jewish people, are supposed to reflect and share with others. They carried the altar upon which incense was offered. And incense represents the deepest, profoundest, most intimate connection with God. So they were carrying what is called the sacred artifacts, the holiest of the holy. And that's how Parshat Hamidbar ends. And Parshat Naso opens with the words that narrate the conscription of the tribe or the clan, which is called Gershon. Kehat has proverbially already been drafted. And now we are going to focus on the second family. Vayedaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor. Parshat Naso opens with very familiar words God spoke to Moses, saying, and this is what he said, Naso et Rosh Bnei Gershon. I'll translate it literally. Take a census of the clan of Gershon. Gam Hain. Them too. According to their paternity, the father's houses by their families. You are Jewish because your mother is Jewish. The kind of Jew you are, as in Kohen, Levi, or Israel, or what your tribal connection is, follows the paternal lineage. In the modern vernacular, whether you keep Sephardic customs or Ashkenazic customs depends not on your mother, but on your father. So if your mother is from Morocco, but your father is descended from Jews coming out of Eastern Europe, well, you'll follow the Eastern European customs and you will not be eating rice during the, the holiday of Pesach. But if your mother comes from Eastern Europe and your father comes from North Africa, then 
you will be eating rice and doing all kinds of other things. Being Jewish, I'm not. What kind and how we celebrate our Jewishness, the specific lineage that ordains and details how we fulfill the mitzvot in their specific fashion, that follows the talk. And so Gershon, Gershon's children are Levites, regardless of which tribe their mother is from. And so now they will be counted according to their father's houses, according to their paternal lineage by their families. And the Torah goes on to say, you must count them from the age of 30 and older, until the age of 50. They shall be counted. And why is this? So that they will be so that they will be eligible for the troop. It's going to be a troop formation. And the troop formation is going to have duties assigned to it. To perform services in the proverbial tent of meeting or in the Mishkan, the traveling tabernacle. Now, why do we have an emphasis on the age of 30 to 50? The simple answer is heavy lifting. We're told that until you reach the age of 30, your strength is not fully developed. And that once you pass the age of 50, I don't know if you're over the hills, I'll let you know in a few months, but your strength or stamina begins to somewhat wane. So the physical stamina, the strongest a person ever is, is between the age of 30 and 50. Now it says Gamhim, them too. So this is like a continuation. Although the parasha is broken, there's a continuation. And Rabbeinu Asher, the Rosh, says something very interesting. He says, why Gamhim? Why them too? The tribe of, or the clan of Kahat, would actually carry the ark on their shoulders. They had to carry the menorah, that was very, very heavy. They had to carry the table, they had to carry the altar. These were very heavy items, and so you needed to be on the top of your physical strength and stamina. But the clan of Gershon would be loading things onto wagons. You don't have to schlep through the desert. And because they'd be loading things onto wagons, you might think, well, we can still be working at 55, maybe even at 60, or even 65. After all, they don't have to carry through the desert. They're only expected to lift the things and put them into the moving truck. Torah says, no, Gamhein. God says from the clan of Levi, I want those at their highest form of stamina and strength to perform these duties, and the rest will take a step back and allow those who are young and strong to perform the sacred responsibilities, the duties that are going to be divvied out amongst the clan of Levi. I know this sounds kind of boring. Details about conscription of ancient clans that once walked in sandals or barefoot in the hot sands of the Sinai Desert. And I know you're asking, what in heaven does this have to do with me? How is this supposed to change my life? How is this supposed to give me inspiration? I'm living in the midst of a pandemic and I got riots in the street. People are literally afraid for their lives. And you're telling me stories about ladies who are schlepping things through the desert or about their conscription. Mark my words. You will hear within these few verses an incredibly profound lesson that can 
and must be broadcast to the whole world because it is the idea that is conveyed, couched within these few verses, that can necessarily turn the world for the better. And this is how it goes. This is how it goes. Rashi tells us that this business of gamhein, them too, how did Parsha start off? It's like, you too is not a nice thing to say. Why couldn't they get their own, you know, honor or dignity? We talked about Kahat, and they were given the glory of carrying the ark. That's nice. And now let's move on. We'll talk about Gershon's responsibilities. Did you have to emphasize that it was a them too? So Rashi says that the words Naso et Rosh Gershon, that you should count and take a census of the children of Gershon Gamhain, refers to what we have spoken about in the previous Torah portion. Just as I have ordained or commanded you with Liro to see Kama so that you might be able to learn or appreciate how many have reached the point of conscription. How many can be used for this sacred duty? So why is that connected to a Gamhain? Commentaries in Rashi say that the emphasis of the Gamhain really is to, to, to highlight and to point not only to the general conscription, not only to the general idea, but the specific census taking, the numbers that get tallied, and the actual jobs that are given out. In other words, Gamhain does not only refer to what has happened prior, but on the go forward, we have a duty of also making Gershon count. You see, my friends, Gershon was feeling a little downtrodden. After all, Gershon is the eldest of the Levite clans seen generally as the most prominent of Levite clans. And here Gershon has been demoted or has received the mandate of second fiddle. They will not carry the ark. They will not carry the Torah. They'll carry the drapery. They'll carry the planks, the enclosure, but not the sacred artifacts that occupy the actual Mishkan. The word naso, which by and large is used in these verses to describe the notion of census taking or counting, is also specifically related to the idea of uplifting. In fact, the word naso itself here, meaning the concept of census or counting, is actually an idiom of the term lift up. Lift up. For by counting, one is able to elevate. Think of it this way. When a person counts something that they have, something of value, the counting kind of broadcasts that what I have is important to me. Each detail of it, whether I'm counting money, counting something else of value, or whether one is enumerating and counting their children. 
when everybody stands to be counted. The message that's being conveyed is that the unit of the aggregate is made up of individuals. And it's not just the final number, it's the process that gets me to that tally. I broadcast the meaning, the importance of each and every single individual. The word naso means to raise or to lift up. And it is used in the terminology of counting because what we're really saying is that when you count, you enable each one to feel as if they count. It is possible for people who have a, a different task, not to feel that they count as much, not to feel that they are as important. So the Torah comes along and says, Naso, you must count or lift up the tribe of Gershon, the clan of Gershon as well, even though their job seems to be inferior. Nonetheless, they should be uplifted. They are equally important. Each of us is equally important. I want to share with you the words of a fascinating Medrash. The Medrash says, Gershon Even though Gershon is actually the firstborn, we find in every place the Torah attributes importance, prominence to the eldest. Think of Isaac and the blessings he conferred upon Jacob and Esau. Esau who had the birthright, but Isaac in turn, who ends up conferring the blessings on Jacob. And then he discovers that Esau has sold him to Jacob, a business with a birthright. And when Jacob, in turn, wants to bless his grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, there's an issue. Who's the firstborn? And why the firstborn is receiving secondary blessings? The natural, the natural bias in Torah is that the firstborn be given that added distinction. In fact, when it comes to the laws of inheritance, a Bechor, a firstborn, has added right. So the Medr says, even though Gershon is the Bechor, Gershon was the eldest son of Levi, you would think that he should have received the most important job. And we find everywhere that that's the case with the Bechor. Because Kahos was in fact carrying the Aron, Shesham HaTorah. That's where the Torah was placed. Higdimo HaKosov LeGershon. That's why we don't say Gershon Kahat Merari. The enumeration is out of order. Kahat first, only afterwards going back to the eldest clan of Gershon and then moving on to Merari. Why? Simple. Because Kahat had the sacred duty of carrying the Aron, the Torah, the Menorah, the Shulchan, and the Mubeh these sacred artifacts. But the Rebbe asked a curious question. Clearly, the name of this week's Torah portion is to raise up. The name itself, Naso, means to lift, to uplift. And if the Torah is telling us that the Levites were uplifted, that their potential was actualized, through the process of enumeration, counting, and conscription, 
if this enabled them to be who they could best be, if Kahas, for whatever reason, was predisposed to carrying the Torah, and of course it was Kahas, who was the grandfather of the Moshe, the Aaron, the Kohanim. So if Kahas is positioned, and there is the special, what we would call, spiritual proclivity or predisposition to be able to carry Torah, then we should have first talked about Gershon, the elders, then moved on to talk about Kahas, and then talk about Marari, in the order of their birth. But the Medrash says that this wasn't done that way, because Kahat had the, car the duty, the privilege of carrying the Torah, and as such, he should be enumerated first. So the Nebuchadnezzar's question is, all three families should have appeared in this week's Torah portion. In order, or not, in order to say that each was uplifted to their specific potential. A parsha that means not so uplift should apply to all of the clans of Levi regardless of their particular task or mission. And the Rebbe says that the Torah is sending us a very important message. There's a discussion in the Talmud. It's found in Sechet Kedushin. On page 40, the Gemara talks about what is greater, the study of Torah or the fulfillment of mitzvahs. And the Gemara goes on to detail the study of Torah that begins immediately when the Jewish people begin their journey in the desert and then enumerates a series of mitzvot which only begin either upon their arrival in the land of Israel or after having settled the land of Israel or after having observed its specific agricultural cycles or after having set in motion its cycle of resetting the economy called the Jubilee and the Gemara goes through all these mitzvot and says, you see, the Torah, it begins with Torah. It's only later that we come to do the mitzvot. And yet, the very same Talmud in the Sechet of Akama on page 17 tells us that you must know that in the end, Talmud Gadol, Torah study, is indeed greater. But it's greater, Shemevi Midei Maiseh, because it is only study that can bring a person to follow through with action. If you don't study, how will you know what to do? But if you study and learn, then you're able to fulfill, you're able to act on the word of Hashem. Action will not need, lead to knowledge. Doing all kinds of good things will not make you any wiser. It won't put you into the know. But knowing can and should make you better. Because if you know what you must do, why you must do, and how you must do, surely you will do. So study Torah is greater, but the study of Torah is greater because it will lead us into action. In other words, if one contemplates the words of the Gemara, the greatness of study is because and when it does not remain on some lofty platitude. It doesn't exist in an ivory tower of theoretical ideas. 
But Torah study is valuable and virtuous when it is carried out in the realm of action. In fact, its value and virtue can only be seen and appreciated when it is acted upon. So Torah study, which is expressed in the realm of things done, is a Torah study that is godol, is a Torah study that is great, is a Torah study that is magnified and powerful. That's the kind of academic pursuit, that's the kind of scholastic excellence each and every one of us should and must be motivated to pursue as members of Am Yisrael. The Rebbe suggests that that's exactly why Kahat and his carrying of the Torah don't need to be specifically elevated or uplifted. What needs to be uplifted is the virtue of action. The value of scholarship is something that the Jewish people have always had. It's no secret that we have an inordinate amount of Nobel Prizes, specifically in areas of, of knowledge and sciences. And that probably has something to do with a genetic predisposition to valuing intellectual pursuit. And when I say genetic predisposition, I'm not saying that we Jewish people, by virtue of our Jewishness, are necessarily wired in a way which is more efficacious, talented, or capable than others. But I am saying that epigenetically, we would become predisposed to excellence because when something is done repeatedly for generations, it actually makes its imprinture on the genetic code of a human being. The Gemara actually says this. The Talmud says that when you have three generations that are steeped in Torah study, then they can be fairly certain that their future progeny will continue to value and achieve excellence in Torah study. That statement, whilst on the surface seems rather odd, just because my father and mother did something, doesn't mean I have to do something, is perfectly borne out by the latest cutting-edge scientific inquiry into the field of genetics. It's called epigenetics, and the word epi, like epidermis, means on the outside, the surface, and that means that people necessarily become predisposed, become naturally pre-oriented in a particular direction if that's the way they were raised, and that's the way their parents were raised, and that's the way their grandparents were raised, it actually becomes part of the genetic code. It's scientifically proven today that people who come from a family where there's abuse, say substance abuse, have a much higher chance of falling into that trap. It doesn't mean that they're forced, God forbid, to be addicted to harmful substances. It just means that there's a greater chance that they might end up that way. It's never a bygone conclusion that everybody will be good or bad. In fact, each and every one of us is given the freedom of choice. And we are placed in the world, and we are asked by Hashem to make the right choice. And the good news is that Hashem gives us the ability to make that choice. Each and every one of us is endowed with the ability to choose appropriately. That means that if you have a predisposition towards negative behavior, you will also be given the strength to overcome it. The sad thing is that so many people today never even heard words like overcoming weaknesses. Instead, they're being brought up to celebrate weaknesses. 
and to think that mediocrity is a great achievement. Well, it isn't. The truth is, we all have weaknesses, but those weaknesses should be overcome. Our parents and our educators can guide us in the right direction. They can try to inspire us to choose appropriately, but in the end, it's going to be our own decision. Think of Jacob and Esau. Was not Esau predisposed to be wicked? Did he not feel a tugging towards idolatry and worse when he was still in his mother's womb? Gestating? The measure seems to indicate so. That's what made Mother Rebecca so nervous. But the answer to that is so simple. Rambam, Maimonides himself, in his treatise on Pirkei Avot called Shemona Prokham, or eight chapters, Rambam Maimonides says that there are two kinds of spiritual warriors, two kinds of spiritual success stories. He says one is HaChosid HaMa'ur, one is that perfectly pious individual. He slays his dragons easily, for his spirit is indeed robust. But the truth is, his spirit isn't that robust, because his dragons didn't present that much of a challenge. Then Rambam says there's another kind of person. He's called HaMitgaber al Yitzro, the person who overpowers his evil inclination. That person has much bigger demons, and as such, also has much greater spiritual capacity. The Zohar clearly states that Esau was much more well-endowed when it came to spirituality. He was capable of far greater things, and that's why Isaac favored him. It's only when Isaac saw that Jacob is actually capable of breaking out of his box that he was glad he blessed him. But that is a story for another class. The point I'm trying to make is that each and every one of us has the ability to choose right. What we can do is emphasize what's valuable and important. The reason that Jewish people have succeeded in the realm of intellectuality, in scholastic, in the field of scholastics, is because generation after generation, we lionize not the jouster, but the one who is adept with a page of Talmud. It wasn't about physical brawn. It wasn't about doing valor on the battlefield. It was who would be able to best their opponent and the debating field. And this became part of our DNA. Even, unfortunately, when many Jews fell away from a Torah way of life, they still gravitated towards scholastic achievement, which explains a, a lot of things about the Jewish people and what they've accomplished over the last century. But it all begins here. It all begins in a tribe, in a clan that's walking through the desert. It all begins in the Torah's narrative of Levites who are carrying the Torah and Levites who are carrying the structure. The Alter Rebbe says in a fascinating minor, in this week's Torah portion, he talks about the achievement of Torah study versus the achievements that are accomplished through mitzvah observance. And he says, it is precisely because the observance of mitzvahs naturally harnesses things which are not in the line of vision of the holy or the spiritual. Dvarim Gashmir, materiality, which comes from the dominion of Klippa of Husk, that which is not necessarily going to reflect the presence of the Creator. And those sparks have fallen there from a very lofty place, but when you do the right thing, I didn't say when you learn know what's right. I said when you do the right thing. When you do the right thing, you are able 
to bring about a transformation of the physical, of the rubric that doesn't naturally reflect the presence of God. And the Bnei Gershon, he says, who carried the enclosure. It is these Bnei Gershon, which is This is in the image of mitzvot performed. The Torah says, raise them up. The Rebbe says, what we're really being told is that emphasis must be placed not only on excellence in the area of scholastics, but that even scholastical achievement should be valuable. And that's why the Torah chose to speak about Gershon first, because we, the Jewish people, have the greatest of reverence about Torah. Because Torah is chayenu v'orach yameinu. It is the matter from which our lives are woven, quite literally. It is what gives us strength. It is what gives us our stamina. It is what inspires, energizes, and enables us. But at the same time, despite the power that Torah study brings to the table, there's a tremendous emphasis, or there should be a tremendous emphasis, not on academic pursuit of Torah, but practical pursuit of Torah. Torah, which is translated into the real world. And that's why the Torah portion ends at the end of Badibro. We've given the clan of Kahat its due. We've placed our stamp of approval and we've given our appreciation and spoken of how impressed we are with Torah study. But then we open the page and this week begin a new Torah portion. And the Torah portion is called Nussel. And Nussel means we have to live a life that counts. And it counts. It counts and it's uplifted when the emphasis is on Bnei Gershon, Gam Heim, they too, they too really is, it's all about Gershon. If you're stuck in the box with Kahat, if you only have Torah study, you miss the point. As our sages say, Kol HaOmer, Ainli Elo Torah, one who says, all I have is scholastic excellence and achievement. All I have is knowledge of Torah. Afilu Torah, you know. He doesn't even have Torah. Because in order to have Torah, it's got to be Torah, 